0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm Rick Kleffel, and welcome to the Agony Column
1: so much about insects is obscure to us yet our capacity to condition their existence is so vast even the most beautiful butterfly observed primo levy has a diabolical mask-like face unease has a stubborn source unfamiliar and unsettling we sim- simply cannot find ourselves in these creatures the more we look the less we know they're not like us they do not respond to acts of love or mercy or remorse it is worse than indifference It is a deep, dead space without reciprocity, recognition, or redemption. Hugh
0: Raffles is a professor of anthropology at Eugene Lang College, the new school for liberal arts. He's the author of In Amazonia, A Natural History, and his essays have been published in Granta, Orion, and Best American Essays. His new book is Insectopedia. Thank you for joining me, Hugh. Thanks very much for having me, Rick. It's great to be here. Hugh, uh, this is a book has a very unique format. This is an abacadarium. So mm-hmm. tell us what exactly an <laughs> abacadarium is
1: and why you chose this format. Well, it, it's an alphabetical book. It has 26 chapters, which, which is too many chapters, I have to tell you, at least to write. I hope it's not too many <laughs> chapters to read, but to write it was too many chapters. Um, so it took me quite a long time. But um, I chose the form... Partly because, you know, I wanted to write about a, a book about insects and insects are so, just so uncountable. There's so many of them, they're so incredibly diverse. I needed a form that could somehow encompass them. And also, I wanted to have a form which would, which in some way, well, in, in certain ways it's a joke. Because the idea of encyclopedia is that you can you can summarize and capture all knowledge within the within the boundaries of the book, and it was very clear to me right from the beginning that this was just impossible <laughs> in this project. So the titles, as you as you know, have a sort of randomness about them to each chapter. Instead of it being you know A for aphids, B for beetles, C for caterpillars or something, it's some um, A for air, B for beauty, C for Chernobyl, and the uh, the arbitrariness of that is supposed to indicate to the to the reader that it's just an impossible project uh
0: I, I one of the things that i think is interesting is the, is the idea of this as an encyclopedia because when you read this it's almost um like you're uh trying to lampoon the idea that we could ever understand the insect world and and contain all that understanding in one anything let a al- book let alone a, a mainframe computer the size of this building yes
1: <laughs> i think so when i when i started out to write the book my my goal was as far as i remember it was to figure out a way figure out a way to write about insects as insects um, they seem so. They seem so. Well, they are so different from us, and, and so hard to make sense of. And I, I really wanted to try to see if it was possible through writing, to, to to make them real and intelligible, and somehow, yeah, somehow bring them to life and make them just make some connection to them, um, and increase our understanding of them. But but I figured out a couple of things. I think one that I had no idea how to do that. And that the tools that I had available to me, which would be, I suppose, anthropomorphism would be a big one. You know, just just giving them human attributes um, was one, and that's that's something that that I I think I do quite a lot in one way or another. Um, and the other would be a more scientific, object sort of objective approach. That both of them are really inadequate in some ways. I mean, they tell you something, but they also don't tell you don't tell you enough. So what I ended up doing really was thinking about relationships between people and insects and finding people who had very interesting and intimate relationships with insects. And actually, I think that was fine because because really that's that's the best way to make sense of them, I think, is to think of them as really entangled in their lives and us entangled in their lives. You're a professor of anthropology, yeah. not a
0: professor of insectology <laughs> or entomology. <as laughs> it, I, I, I know the word. So what brought you to this? become even interested in insects other than that, something that you swat
1: yeah it's a, it's a great question isn't it um i think you, you know in in the social sciences and humanities in the past 10 years or so i suppose there's, there's really been an explosion of interest in animals now that you know have you know have animal studies and and really a, there's just a lot of interest in it and some people in, you know people at santa cruz who have actually at the university of santa cruz have actually been um, pioneers in this field. I'm thinking of um, Donna Haraway in history of consciousness and Anna Singh in, um, in anthropology. Who've really been people who've um, written extensively about this um, in one way, one way or another. Um, people's relationships with nature and with, insect, with animals, in particular. And I was, I became interested in this partly when I was at Santa Cruz, um, but it was, you know, and it was an interest which which continued for me. But and I started. Um, so the history of this is that I started, I started teaching courses about animals because I wanted to know what had been written about this mm-hmm. and I found that a lot, lot had been written about people's pets and domestic animals of all kinds a lot had been written about primates and I started getting interested in, in insects because they're animals that seem, well partly because people didn't even think of them as animals mm-hmm. um, but also because they, they seem so much more distant from us and so much harder in some ways so much harder to, to find ourselves in than these other animals and so they seemed, that seemed an interesting challenge to me well, they seem to me. Uh, I mean, in many ways, I think people almost regard them
0: as like alien creatures that are, in many ways, that something that you can't know. So, talk about to us about how we can know in that, insects, and maybe how you started from this idea and got. How did you get to know insects? Where did you start? Yeah. Um,
1: yes, <laughs> I. I think what I. What I did. In, at least initially was um came across situations in which well what i did actually i think the best way to describe this is i i looked for i looked for people who had thought about this longer than I had and had developed relationships with insects that seemed to me to um had provided them with with more understanding both of insects and through insects actually of, of the world in general so one of the first people that i that i um that I wrote about and who I spent some time with was a woman called Cornelia Hassaninger, who is a Swiss artist, who has been collecting tiny little leaf bugs, um, in in originally in, in just in, in her in her yard, but then she started collecting them around um, nuclear power stations in Switzerland and elsewhere, and she found that they had there was a very high instance of deformities amongst them they had, you know, misshapen antennae and misshapen legs or they'd have missing missing legs and missing feelers, all kinds of all kinds of deformities which, you know, they're tiny, they're about five millimeters, three millimeters long. Very hard to see, but, but she devoted so much time to them now it's been thirty or forty years that she's been looking to them looking at them that she could really see these different these these differences mm-hmm. very clearly. And she was also able to to identify with them to the extent that she could she could imagine the extent to which these kinds of deformities were were huge if you were if you were a tiny insect mm. um, so she was very very sympathetic to them in that way you know she sort of understood them very well and and she she also she started to rec- she so she her, she was her training was as a scientific illustrator and um so she was she was thinking she was actually thinking as a scientist although she wasn't really formally trained as a scientist so she started setting up Really, things that were quite like the, they were experiment, experimental or experiments. They were really. She had quite a strict methodology. She would she would go to nu- nuclear power stations and and map map the area around them and collect insects in sort of in different seg- sections. So in places that were downwind of um, of the power station, and then places that were more protected, say. And then she would comparatively map the the level of deformities that she would find in the insects. So she she produced this what well, to me, anyway, is very, very compelling data that shows that even at very, very low, low levels of um, exposure to radiation, these insects were quite severely affected.
0: You know, it strikes me that she and you have something in common, and and that's a uh, uh, kind of a, a synthesis that's not exactly science as we know it, and not exactly art. As we know it, but partakes of both of those, and I think it's something more compelling than both of those. More to to somebody who is neither a scientist nor an artist. Mm.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm certainly not a scientist or, or an artist, but I'm. A, but I'm very interested in both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I suppose yes, in some ways, like like Cornelia, I'm. A, I'm a very curious person, and I'm interested in how. <sighs> How would i put it something like how worlds get made by things coming together ah, that's S-
0: very interesting so
1: you know in all of these situations you know insects are at the center of it partly because i've you know in the way that i tell the stories i put insects at the center of them mm-hmm. um but but because but the insects pull all these things together around them so they pull all these people in there they pull in some cases they pull you know the important questions become aesthetic questions, and other t- other situations they become scientific questions, um sometimes they're ethical questions. But there's always this all this politics and history. I mean, I could give you examples if it's, if that would make this clearer, but but all these things come together, but they've they're organised and focused around the insects. So insects become a way of making making sense of the world, but they also sort of become the, if you like, the glue that holds it together, at least maybe for a moment. I that you know? that yeah, exactly. This is a well, this is a great way to look at people,
0: I think. That's what I love about this book, is though the um it covered calls it an insectopedia and you'll certainly learn a lot about insects reading it. You'll learn just mm-hmm. as much about humans and the way humans interrelate yeah. To one another, as well as how they interrelate to insects.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, in some ways, I, I don't even think. I mean, this probably sounds ridiculous because it's all about insects. But in some ways, I don't really think of it as a book about insects. Mm, mm-hmm. I think about it. I think of it as a book about all these all these different worlds. I mean, some of them are you know some of it is very historical. Some of it, a lot of it happens in, in you know some very. I travelled a lot, so it happens in some very different places. But insects provide a way, or these particular insects that I talk about in each chapter provide a way into sort of like this oblique angle into understanding the world that, that, um, that I'm describing in in each situation, in each case. Now, um, one of the things that,
0: that, that I think is, is really interesting is that, um, just to talk a little bit about though this is a writing project. Um, you've got 26 chapters here. um, which is, as you said, that's a lot to write. It's not a lot to read because it's very... Um, the way it's paced, the way it's pixelated, I kind of, I mean, it's, it's like looking at a really beautiful uh, quilt cool, in, in many ways. That's a, it's you. a literary quilt in that sense. Um, but uh, talk about... Uh, writing these i mean some of them are like prose
1: poems yeah
0: and others are like really interesting stories about people and some of them kind of have a little bit more of a scientific edge did yeah. you write all these at once i mean did you start all 26 letters at
1: once and some of them went <laughs> <laughs> no i i wrote them one at a time there were there were periods when i had two or three of them on the go at once mm-hmm. but i pretty much would focus on one and when i had more than one on the on the goal, it was really because of my anxiety levels were really, really high. And I was getting worried. <laughs> that this is going to take me the rest of my life. And I still had 12 chapters to go because I was locked into these 26, which is, you know, it's sort of a nightmare, actually. Although, you know, of course, then, then that just pushes you on to actually accomplish that and not take any shortcuts because that's the point, right? The, the constraint becomes the point. Um, and so you have to do it. Otherwise, you know, there are no shortcuts. Otherwise, you've just... It's become such a it's a disaster. Right? I mean, you, can't, you can't have an alphabet with just 24 <laughs> letters, and people would say to me, "Oh, you could just have, you know, you could have Q could just be nothing. It could just be blank." Then I think, no, it can't be. That's not going to well, work. Q is so, one of the most interesting ones. Qs, too. Qs are good. <laughs> yeah, i was happy with Q. So I, I did write them one at a time, but I thought a lot as I was writing it about. How to make this a book that people people would enjoy reading? I think mm-hmm. it's very important that people get pleasure from reading. You know, all kinds of pleasure, not just you know, like it's fun to read it. You know, but sort of the pleasure of struggling with it, the pleasure of sort of. I mean, to some extent, the pleasure of suffering through difficult things and coming out the other side of that as well. You know, all kinds of types of pleasure and enjoyment. Um, so, but I wa- I really thought a lot about about the experience of the experience of reading the book. So as you, as you say, there's a there's there's quite a lot of variety in there. Um, and there are some things that are very short and that are really just almost like, de- you know, short descriptions of, of something. Some things that are just two or three pages or even less. And I, I wanted those, sometimes I put those in after a chapter that's really been quite, maybe quite difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, well, just, are
0: none of the chapters I found to be difficult actually. Oh, good, that's I, I thought fine. they were, uh, I'm, some of them are a little bit longer. I, I think the pacing is very nice in the book. And it really makes it. and i'm I'm interested that you thought about this as a reading experience because mm. that's something that I'm very interested in is the just the experience of reading, which is and this is a very unique kind of uh, book that I think, and that's one of the real pleasures of this um that it takes us different places and it gives us breaks and allows us to to experience uh, have a a variety of experience with a unifying theme that yeah. that keeps our our interest now um let, let's talk a little bit uh oh you know maybe maybe i'll come well let's talk about this now one okay. of the things i love about books is hardcover books mm-hmm. i'm a big hardcover book fan, and this is a beautiful book that said um i i'm one of the people who's like the slathering and a lather to get an, an ipad <laughs> i I literally had to lash myself to the chair to stop from going down yesterday to best buy because i've already got one on order with 3g and i could and i uh-huh. and, but those won't come to the end of the month so i think i need something for the <laughs> but control yourself, control yourself. When, 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 <laughs> exactly <laughs> when, when i when i saw this book as i was reading this book
1: i was thinking this would make a lovely
0: experience for this kind of thing. Have
1: you thought about that? as, well, a, as I've, a writer? I've thought a lot about this, actually. Yeah, well, I'm starting to think a lot about it. Um, and there's going to be a Kindle version, but that's that doesn't I agree with you. at this point, that doesn't really count in some <laughs> ways. Because, <laughs> but, but I'm very excited about the possibilities of you know a really media-rich, book experience mm-hmm. and what what you know what something like the ipod could the ipad rather could could provide in in that way so i'm thinking that you know i'm, I'm starting to write another book and that's probably going to take well this one took six to seven years and the next one probably take about the same although i hope not but i you know that seems <laughs> to be the way it goes so probably so you know you have to sort of imagine what it's going to be like in 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 that amount of time but but i have this fantasy that you'll you'll be looking at books and you'll be reading them on an I mean, I guess you'll be be—you'll still be reading, you know, hard copy print books, I think, but mm-hmm. you'll also be able to read books on an iPad and and similar media, and they'll have all kinds of things built into them. So it won't just be a text-based experience, but you'll be able to have video in there, you'll be able to have, um, you know, it's a touch screen, so you can move, you can have all kinds of things. You can have maps, you can have interviews with people, you can have just really a sort of dense media experience. And the... Reader can have much more control about how they want to navigate through that. So the book, this book that I've done, I think, well, people can, you know, it's twenty six letters, and people can read it as they want to. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it works for me if people go from A to Z. But you know, they really don't have to do that. They can, they can turn it into whatever kind of experience they want to. But you know, this this is a whole completely different dimension if you're thinking about, about an iPad, right? Because uh-huh. because it's the there's so much that you could potentially put in there. I mean, the part of it that's the part of it that scares me, I suppose, is that you know how do you how do you f- not just how do you find all that material, and but how, but the amount of work that goes into putting Pro- that in there, producing it. All, all of a sudden, here, it's it.
0: almost almost like a movie.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, like directing want, a movie because you'd want it to be really, you'd want stuff to be really good quality, and mm-hmm. you know, and to to really to work. And so you're going to have to think in three whole, dimensions. Th- yeah, you really are, aren't you? And yeah. think really visually. And um, but in this book, there's so much. There's yeah. there's a lot of interesting sound stuff. I could have done all kinds of mm-hmm. things. Yeah.
0: Well, it, it, one of the things that that uh, you were talking about is the limitations of the abacadarium yeah. being a driving force to inspire you to finish. Also, the limitations of a book hardcover book for one thing. There's nothing that can replace, I think. The, that experience of looking at text, reading it, and turning it into something in your head. You. A- and one of the things that you do as a writer is using those limitations, the fact that you are writing a book, you create these wonderful pictures. I think you know, that no amount of uh, 3D immersive anything is going to replace. I'm yeah. thinking of the piece uh, about the cicadas in Japan. Um, let's see. Is that uh, yes? It's R for Reveries. Yes, uh, yeah. Talk about th- that experience when you went there. That sounds like a, a really beautiful place to be. How, was, how did you find that?
1: You know, it was um, it was very close in in Japan. There are um, a, a large number of insectaria, which are sort of a cross between natural history museums and zoos dedicated just to insects. You know, I went to Singapore and they had a really great did one. They to Singapore, yeah. Oh, really? Okay, so maybe it's maybe it's across Asia, East Asia and Southeast Asia, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, but I've only seen I've only seen this in Japan, and a lot of them were built during the um, you know during the bubble the bubble era in the in the um, late eighties early nineties. Mm-hmm. So um, you know that's one of the things that people invested in at that time. So it's great <laughs> because all those <laughs> things are there and now. I guess they wouldn't be able to do that at all. Um, and um, they there's one which is very near. That, that I visited with my research assistant. That was very near um, this this park that I described. This place Minoa Park, which is not far from Osaka, and you just take a train from Osaka to get there. And um, I liked it a lot. And I did field fieldwork there for a couple of weeks. And then um, Sharon, my um, my wife, came out, and we spent a we spent a, a week in Japan. And I liked the place a lot, so we went back there. And that's that's what I write about. We, it was a beautiful, beautiful sunny day. This was June, I think. And um, no, it wasn't. I'm sorry. It was it was the first, right at the end of July, beginning of August. And um, we, and it's a it's a park. It's a it's really a beautiful park. Very very quiet. Um, very very calm place. And because it was summer, there were just very very noisy cicadas. And it's it's a strange thing, but. Before I went, before I went to Japan, and people kept drawing my attention to cicadas, I'd never noticed that in New York, where I live now, um, in summer you also really hear cicadas very, very loudly. Mm-hmm. Now that I've been back, now that I live there, you know, having gone back after being in Japan, I hear them every summer and really pay attention to them. But before I went, I didn't even know that they were there. So I don't. This says more about me than it, than anything else, I think. But, um, but that day, yeah, that day we um, we walked through the park and then we we stopped and sat on a bench. And um, just heard the sounds of the cicadas, and I, and I want, wanted to try to figure out a way to describe that. You know, there is so many uh,
0: varieties uh, of writing in this book. There is these beautiful prose poems, which is kind of how I would describe that piece. And there is a a wonderful piece about malaria. Talk yeah. talk about malaria. How did you get inside the the mind of a fever? <laughs> I, I trust you avoided uh, malaria itself.
1: No, unfortunately not. No, um, I did my the first. Fieldwork that I did, which was now in 1995-96, was in in the Amazon estuary, in a village in the Amazon estuary, and I spent, you know, a fair bit of time there. I stayed there for about a year, 15 months, and um, pretty much everybody in that community gets malaria every year. Um, some people get it worse than other people, and you know, I got it along with everybody else, and I, but I didn't get it as badly, partly because I was um, taking anti-malarial medicine. And actually, that's the only reason I can think of why I didn't. I mean, there are other people who that year didn't get it at all either. But some people got it extremely severely and came close to death. And there was somebody on the next village or the next river along um, who who died that year from it. It's really, it's really terrible. And um, it's. I mean, the reason why people people um, die and suffer with it so much really is because there's no health infrastructure to, or very little health infrastructure to support them. So the um, the book the the chapter in the book is a description of a a day when we took a myself um and the husband of this of um this woman we took her the woman who had malaria we t- we took her to a health post which was quite somewhere away and which was really just it was we were just really in panic to get to get her there because she was just in a terrible state she was um almost um we thought she was she was close to death in fact, she t- it, in fact she survived anyway that year, but um, yeah, it's it, 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 malaria is a, t- a terror is a terrible <laughs> thing, and um, you know it's just it's just um, extremely common in places like the Amazon. Now, uh,
0: you talked about Corelia uh, uh, hesse Henniger. Mm. Uh, uh, this is in, in C for Chernobyl. Um, talk about interviewing some of the people, and, and you know. Getting to know these people, getting involved in their lives, yeah. and and people who have been around for a while and done this for a while, and then yeah. creating a, a a nice prose piece out of it—that's yeah. not easy, I would imagine.
1: I find it very very difficult actually. Um, and what I try to do is work quite closely with people. So I mean I mean in the in the writing in the writing okay case. so
0: she's she, she help, she's she's looking over your shoulder then
1: to some extent mm-hmm. i talked to her about um what i'm going to do um and she has and before i before i publish it or really before it's a complete a complete thing i sent i sent it to, this to her she's read it she told me things that she didn't want me to include in this case actually some things she asked me not to include when I was writing, I did include. I sent them back to, her and I said, "Look, I've included these things. Can you, you know, what do you think of it?" And she actually, in that case, was was fine with that. Sometimes people people aren't, mm-hmm. but in that case, she was. So the people, most of the people, not everybody actually, but most of the people who feature very strongly, and I tell a lot about their lives, um, read this read this prior to publication. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. in all cases, people. You know i want pe- I want people to feel very comfortable with what i've written written about them you mm-hmm. know because i don't i'm I'm not a journalist mm-hmm. um and i think of develop i think that i've i like to think that i've developed relationship rela- develop relationships of trust with people you know i'm writing with them because i'm writing about them because um well how should i put this um they know they know what i'm they know what i'm doing they know what my project is what i want to write um more or less how i'm going to write it i think the kinds of things the reason why i'm there and the kinds of things that i want to write about so i and i try to make i I want them to feel that they're being fairly represented that their work is being um that i understand their work very well and that i'm describing it in ways that they would like it to be described that i'm not putting any you know i'm quite a private person myself and Mm -hmm. i don't want you know so i want them to feel that they're being you know that they're they're not being sort of violated in any way you know mm-hmm. that they they're they're comfortable with the way they're being portrayed and um and in i would say in all, in all cases then people do feel comfortable with what with um with everything that they read there's there's um there's one case where there's actually a photograph in the book of my um the tra- the my research assistant in Japan and we were we were in an insectarium and he was he was sort of goofing around and he put his head through he put his head through a through some, like, it was like this cutout with insect, with an like, insect thing around right, it yeah, so he yeah. looks like a beetle <laughs> <laughs> and I sent that to him and I said, you know, CJ, are you okay with that? and he's like, oh, he, he, he's like, oh, I don't want you to use that I don't think, I don't think that looks so cool I don't, I'm not sure I want you to use that I said, I said, oh, it does, it looks great, I really, really like it and so we talked about it and he said well, okay, you can, you can, you can send it in because they're never going to let you use that photo anyway and of course they saw the photo and they're like, oh, that's a great photo <laughs> so I said, they really like the photo so he's like, well, okay, then
0: you can use it If you're just joining me, I'm talking with Hugh Raffles. His new book is Insectopedia. We'll return to the interview in just a moment. Let's return to my conversation with Hugh Raffles. Thank you for joining me, Hugh. Um, one of the things that I, I I have to talk about in this book is uh, the part, uh, let's talk about, I think a, a guy who I think is maybe an inspiration and influence for you, uh, Jean-Henri Fabre. Oh, yes. Um, tell us who he was and when he worked and that's one of the things that interested me about this book is that there's so much history in it I mean the study of insects is you think of oh, it might be something they did like started in the 50s when they <laughs> were trying to make giant
1: bugs jug, giant bug movies but uh, <laughs> it, it was before that wasn't it well you know in, in sort of in the Western tradition it really goes back to Aristotle mm-hmm. and one of the things that I try to do in the in the book for people who would who would like this is um, or interested in, in tracing it is that I think you can you can trace more or less a chronological history of the study of insects, um, through, at least in in the west in the Western tradition from Aristotle through to the, through to the present day. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't write it as a chronological history, but you can you can pick it up. It's all it's all in there. It's all in, in the there. book if you want if you want to find it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and Fabre is a really he was a very interesting person because he he was a um, he was a French naturalist, um, very much a not exactly a self-taught person but he came from a very he came from a very poor background um... he and he put, him, he put himself through his, put himself through school, he accumulated degrees actually, a couple of masters degrees um, and um... he but he was very much frustrated by the elitism of french society at the time, he wasn't able to get himself a um, an academic position, this is partly because at the time academic positions were unpaid which was one way of ensuring that it was a very limited group of people who <laughs> could, could hold them, um, and but he was he was very much just obsessed with with the natural with the natural world, and he but it, and he wrote about it. He wrote these, he, so he was a school teacher, I should say, and he wrote he wrote textbooks for schools that were, um, he wrote textbooks for schools. Sorry, he wrote textbooks for schools, and he also started to write these these natural sort of books of natural history observation. And um, particularly of insects, which were very much like stories about the things that insects do, very, very lively, based on very close observation, particularly of... He wrote a lot about wasps, mm-hmm. um, wrote about flies, um, certain kinds of bees. He wrote almost nothing about ants or butterflies. um, wrote about spiders too, but very, very close observation. And he told them a story... He told them... He, he described their activities really as stories Mm -hmm. so they were extremely popular at the time but he he was also you know and he was also at war with darwin um darwin actually wasn't at war with him darwin had very little interest in him there's just one letter that goes back and forth between them um but he he saw himself as being at war with darwin and at war with the with theory of natural selection and um so he and this is this is one of the reasons why he went, he went out of fashion very much mm-hmm. after he died. He died in 1915. And by that time, he was really the scientific community had no interest in it at all. But he was very celebrated by the literary community in, in France. Mm-hmm. Um, but all, his, all these stories that he writes, which seem to describe the ingenuity and intelligence of insects, always end up by saying that they're just driven by blind instinct. And they're really, they're just hardwired. He wouldn't have used the word hardwired, but that's what people would say now. They're hardwired to act in this way. So they do this stuff, and it's really, really amazing. But don't imagine that they're doing this for any other reason than God, God programmed them, basically, to mm-hmm. do this. Um, so he, so his, his, because of that, his work, his work became of, I think, of limited interest, limited interest to science, because his, his analysis and his interpretation was always driven by by this belief by this belief basically in creationism mm-hmm. um... or so nowadays he's most, he's mostly forgotten and the only place actually where he's at all remembered and he's remembered He's really remembered very strongly. He's actually a household name. is in Japan, mm-hmm. where his, his work's read in elementary school. And people know him very well. There's just a Faber museum just opened in Tokyo. He's, you can get little figurines of Faber sometimes get given out free with, um, you know, attached to soft drinks and stuff like that. He's really, really well known.
0: <laughs> There's a um, manga about him. There too. is a manga <laughs> about him. Yeah,
1: he, he crops up a lot. Um, but he was, he was really an interesting person, a strange person too. He, he moved into this house in the south of France near Orange. And the first thing he did was put up a big wall, and the village was about a hundred, hundred meters, hundred yards from where, three hundred yards from where he lived, um, and um, he never went there. He just um he just lived like lived like a hermit in his in his own house. He was a very antisocial person, but he's very sociable with, with insects, but he was very antisocial with people.
0: Yeah, now, now this is the part portion of the book too where you get into well, it's not science fiction, but you get into the inspiration for science fiction, which is uh the the wasp and the caterpillar, which uh, any science fiction uh, aficionado knows that A. E. Van Vogt and Vogt and his uh long uh, since a uh, descendant uh, who created an uh, alien uh, pattern based that creature on the activities of of this of the wasp. Talk about that because it's just amazing what, what happens with these creatures.:
1: Well, parasitic wasps and, and I think you know i 'm not an entomologist, but I think this is common to many species of parasitic wasps um they're soli- they're solitary they're not they're not social so they, they they live on their they live on their own they don't they don't live in big big nests i mean you do get social wasps, but these are the solitary wasps and um they make they make a nest when they're um ready to lay lay an egg um and they they provision the nest with with food for the for the egg or for the egg when it hatches into a larva. and they so what they do is they they find whatever their prey might be. It might be a caterpillar. It might be a cricket. There's all kinds of things it might be. A um, little beetle, and they paralyze it. They they sting it in such a way that it's alive but it's it's immobile. And these these um this prey could be you know several times larger and heavier than the wasp itself. And then somehow they drag it or they they clasp it and fly with it and take it back back to their wasp in, back to their nest. You know put it into the nest, um, generally, you know, upside down, lying on its back. And then they'll lay their egg. Well, there's different things that they do. One thing they'll do is they might lay their egg right in the middle on its, on its, on its abdomen, mm-hmm. on, you know, like on its belly, um, its soft tissue. And then when the egg hatches, the larva will begin to eat it. Now, the advantage of that, of course, is that the, the, um, the prey is still alive so it's not you know it's not deteriorating it's not you know the body isn't going putrid or anything like that it's just it's still alive but the disadvantage for the prey of course is that it's getting eaten alive
0: yeah, that's a problem if you're a
1: caterpillar a problem if you're a caterpillar yeah and um yeah it's pretty it's pretty grizzly there are there are there are um there are other well, some of the wasps lay the lay the eggs so that when the larva hatches it will let itself down on the thread eat a bit and then because the the caterpillar might start thrashing around mm-hmm. um, it will then eat what it needs and then it will um, sort of raise itself up again out of its reach So then, then what happens over time is that the you know the caterpillar gets smaller and smaller because <laughs> it's careful that they, they somehow they know to eat eat just the parts which aren't going to be lethal so that it takes a long time for the caterpillar to die, because it, I feel like I'm being really grisly here. I <laughs> <laughs> you wanted the details. We wanted but, the details, yes. Yeah. Um, so you know, the, the lava gets bigger and bigger, and the caterpillar gets you know more smaller and smaller. Fabra thought this was a thought that this was his actually his strongest example of um of instinct and of the you know in in contrast to darwin who felt that instinct was actually learned was the inheritance of learned behavior Mm -hmm. um and developed in the same way as physical traits um faber felt that instinct was pre-programmed from the beginning of the species and never changed so he said as creationists would say today that um you know this this had to be like this because if the caterpillar wasn't stung in exactly this precise way then it would then it would die and then it would rot and it would be no use for the no use for the lava when it hatched or if it wasn't paralyzed quite enough then it would you know then it wouldn't be paralyzed you know if it wasn't paralyzed enough it could just beat up the beat up the lava because it was so much bigger than it and that wouldn't work either but it seems that actually it wasn't quite as per it isn't quite as perfect as that there are m- in many cases um the caterpillar the caterpillar is dead, but the larva continues to eat it anyway, just it's not not as good food, <laughs> or you know they they might be just fighting it out inside there in the nest because it isn't so well paralyzed, or the caterpillar wins out, you know and the not all the larvae I make it so um yeah, so empirically, you know vapa's facts weren't weren't quite right either,
0: one of the things I think that that is uh, really interesting. There's a lot of human culture based around insects that, that heck, I never knew about. And I'm thinking uh, of your your chapter on uh, the, the the crickets. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to us uh, uh, about uh, the 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 uh, cricket betting uh, oh, culture. This yeah. is really really
1: interesting. <laughs> this is actually my it was the, my favorite field work that I did in the book. I spent a few weeks in Shanghai. And I was interested in cricket fighting, which I suppose the closest analogues that that um, we have here in the U.S. would be. Although actually, you do have cricket fighting also in in the U.S. here in Chinatowns. Um, but the more familiar um, comparisons that we would have would be cockfighting or dogfighting. You know, in terms of animal fighting, putting two animals together. Mm-hmm. Um, but cricket fighting is exactly what it sounds like it 's people people put two crickets into into a little arena and they and they fight each other. but the thing is, and I guess this is also as with certainly as with dog fighting, but maybe in a in a different way um, there 's just just huge amount of knowledge and expertise which goes into raising and training and judging and um just all around knowing what to do with crickets.
0: Uh, and uh, just so amazing <laughs> because it's really you, amazing, you, yeah. you, you gotta think, you look at a cricket, I mean I feed them to my gecko, who's oh, yeah. normally... Do, do you really? Yeah. Well, he used I used to, but now he's so he's so obese, he can't even <laughs> get them. I have to go to mealworms. I think mealworms are too fast for him now. I don't know what the heck I'm going to feed him. <laughs> <laughs> a little, little bottle of milk or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, but t- talk
1: about this culture, which which you investigated, and I think it's just yeah. fascinating. Yeah, really, really fascinating. And it was one of those things which turned out to be a whole lot more interesting than I imagined it would be. Um, and for for different different reasons, cricket fighting in China has well the the first the first manual for training raising and training crickets was written about nine hundred years ago. Jeez, <laughs> and people and and people who train crickets um, refer to that, and it's sort of the you know the originary text that they work with. Although you know all the knowledge that much of the knowledge that people have um, developed over the years. Since then has been incorporated into their into you know just into their training practices and what they know so they still refer to that book and it still works for a lot of stuff but they've really people work with it in this very very active way
0: there are cricket like fighting families who generations training their sons how to raise the
1: cricket best fighting crickets I think it I think it probably is handed down because people um yeah, people would learn it from, people would learn it. I know, I know someone who learned it from their uncle, for instance, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, there's uh, one person who I talk about in the book who's been training crickets for 30 or 40 years and who I spent some time with. Well, you know, the level of knowledge is, is extremely impressive and sophisticated. <laughs> people have these very complicated and detailed ways of classifying crickets. They will, they can recognize differences between um between crickets based on the shape of the antennae the what they call the energy of the antennae the um shape of the legs and the power of the legs the it's actually you know it's more detailed than I could possibly lay out for you. I mean, colors um personalities they recognize um extremely detailed and the whole point of that is is to judge what the cricket is going to be like when it's fighting Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and you would think that you couldn't actually do that from looking at it physically yeah, I but mean. actually, people people don't know what they're doing. They really can do that, and they also have these very, very um, careful and carefully worked out training routines, training regimens. They can they have little exercise exercises that they'll give the crickets to get them to you know to limber up and be more agile. They can actually they can give them verbal commands and, and they'll respond to them. They have special foods that they'll give them. Um, there's there's like sexual regimens that they'll put them on um, before a fight. There's. this is really, really detailed. Now, one of the reasons that it's so detailed is because there's also a lot of money involved in it, and there mm-hmm. has been since, it, you know, in the first recorded fights. You know, as I said, nearly a thousand years ago, were all also connected with gambling, and there's there's attempts now to have. A different kind of cricket fighting which is separated from gambling and that's one of the things that I talk about in, in the book as well which is just to celebrate all the knowledge and expertise that goes into it and have like exhibition matches and that kind of stuff <laughs> but, but, but you know in, in some ways I think that's a bit of a hard sell because this because there's also this really lively you know gambling is illegal in China so there's this really lively illegal underground scene mm-hmm. of, um, of fighting crickets and um, you know in, and having you know, cricket matches in, in casinos and everything. Mm. Uh,
0: when I talk about uh, insects seeming alien, I, I feel <laughs> this whole culture you described to me seems like something <laughs> out of a Robert Heinlein. <laughs> you, you know, but it's really fantastic
1: because people are so they're just so knowledgeable and so um so dedicated and have such interesting ways about thinking about their relationships with the animals and of think you know, the ways the animals um Understanding how the animals act and behave, I really felt that people who work so closely with crickets they really understand those animals in ways that you know many of many of us here just don't have that that kind of um, that kind of intimacy and that that kind of closeness. Maybe people who say work very closely with well it's a kind of it's a different kind of closeness than say we'd have with our pets i think it, it sounds like
0: you know, like it. You know I, what, what strikes me um when you describe this and I, when, you, when I read about it is that i mean. These things, they're not just bugs that you go... No. <laughs> <laughs> a, somebody's going to do the same thing to you, <laughs> if you if you smash the wrong one. But more, I mean, these creatures have a lot more intelligence. Uh, that's the only thing I can describe it. Um, there's more to them than
1: something that, as Faber
0: said, would just operates out of blind instinct.
1: Yes. And um, my f- my feeling is that if you're willing to start from the presumption that actually animals in general, but, sh- but you know, so maybe insects are the limit case of this, you know, like a really extreme case of this. So I think if you can, if you're, people are willing to accept with insects, then maybe they can accept with all animals. But if you start looking for the things that animals can do rather than things that either assume that they can't do anything or looking for the things that they can't do, then you'll start to have very different relationships with them and see them in very different ways. And you, you see this a lot, I mean, you certainly see it with the people who... Actually, almost anybody who has very close and intimate relationships with animals, I think, recognizes that. Um, and doesn't just think of them either as, as meat or whatever. Um, but you see this... There's You know, people who, um, for instance, work with, work with scientists who work with bees um, and other flying insects, they, they do a lot of... people do a lot of... Um, a lot of training Games where they'll they'll set up mazes mm-hmm. and they'll they'll test whether or not the the animals can um, can navigate the mazes under different kinds of conditions, and almost always the you know bees can do this. Or in the, in the you know the many articles that I've read, nearly um, nearly always they can do it. And very very often, the article ends up with the same kind of the same kind of um, expression of surprise, which is you know who would have imagined that that such a tiny thing with such a tiny brain could could work out this sort of thing, could do this sort of thing, um, and could accomplish these tasks. And I always think, well, if you assumed instead that it could do these things rather than it couldn't, which is actually what somebody else who I talk and talk about in the book, this guy Carl von Frisch, who discovered the language of bees, mm-hmm. he always assumed that they had more capacity, and the chances were they would be able to do things. So that so he he just looked he just looked at them, thinking what what can they do rather than testing them for what what they couldn't do. And he found out the most amazing things about them because of that, because he was always willing to think, I suppose, something like think with them mm-hmm. and assume that they could do things.
0: Well, he's a really interesting example. Um, because, now, this is something I didn't know, that we knew that bees danced from 1788 on, but Carl von Frisch um, discovered that you know the bee dance had some... You know, was was a language, mm-hmm. and in so doing, he he actually created a a whole new discipline and took what was previously a soft science and may, brought it into the realm of a hard science. And I think that's fascinating the, that insects led the way to the creation of pathology.
1: Yeah, insects were very closely involved, but I I wouldn't say he was the only person. But mm-hmm. I mean, you know, but he's certainly one of one of a f-, one of a few people at the time. At the time, there was just a whole lot of interest in this in this kind of thing, mm-hmm. and it went on, I suppose, through the through the fifties mm-hmm. and sixties, and him and two other leading ethologist got the nobel prize in nineteen seventy three sure is probably like the height of the height of it i think Mm -hmm. um... and you still get a lot of interest in animal um, in animal behavior but probably now most of these most of the work that's done is done at a molecular level around genetics and this kind of thing Um, but from Frisch, yeah he was he's really a fascinating person and he he figured out the he figured out bee dances um... And his students, um, particularly this guy, Martin Lindau, figured out some other really interesting stuff, um, took von Fisher's work past him, and found out all these things about um, what, how bees what happened when bees danced f- when they had to find a new nest. And this stuff really really, really interested me because he figured out that when you know, when, when a, when a, when a um, hive gets to a certain size, it divides, and the old hive goes off with, with the, or part of the hive goes off with the old, the, the existing queen, and the rest of the hive stays, or the, um, or the nest stays, and they produce new queens. The part that goes, they have to find a new nest, because if they don't, if they're exposed to the elements, they, they can die if there's a frost or something, you know, some, they're just, they're vulnerable and exposed. Mm-hmm. So what the bees do is they, they find a temporary resting place, maybe on a on a branch of a tree or something like that. And this will maybe something like thirty thousand bees, maybe. And they all gather. They sort of make a structure by all resting on each other and gathering together and build the structure, like you know, one on top of another, with the, with the queen in the middle because they're protecting her. Mm-hmm. And they send out scouts. And the scouts go and see. All this language is so humanized, you know. But they send out they send out scouts and the scouts go to all these different places looking for nests. And then they come back and they, and just like the bees do when they're, when they're looking for, for nectar, um, they come back and they dance. But different, you know, all the scouts will come back and dance. And there could be, you know, a lot of them, or quite a few of them anyway, like tens mm-hmm. of them. They'll go out, they look, for, they look for the nest and they come back and they describe, they describe what they found and they try to convince the other bees that what they found is a good site. So the other bees other bees there and other scouts will go out and have a look at what they've found and they'll come back and they'll either be convinced about it or they won't be convinced about it. So you'll have, you'll <laughs> have this debate which... A bee Swedes, dance debate. A bee dance debate and it can go on for quite a long time. This is what this guy Martin Lindau figured out. It can go on for quite a long time and eventually they'll reach a consensus that this one place is the best place and that even the ones who disagree will be like okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go live there anyway. And so then they'll all go off. And but it's really a, a debate and they reach consensus and they don't really fight about it or kill each other or anything like that. And, um, yeah, it's sort of amazing. It's,
0: it's really quite amazing. Um, the, one of the things that when we think of bees, we really don't think of, of or, or bees, not bees, I mean insects, the, the phrase insect sexuality has never crossed my mind. And frankly, I never thought it would. But it certainly <laughs> crossed yours, and now it's yep. in mine too, so talk about uh beast or insect sexuality because it's not as straightforward as
1: one might presume no, I don't think it is well you know insects are very complicated, very flexible very fle- very flexible animals they can in the same ways as you know fish and um particularly fish actually can they can change genders and they can um they're they're also very fish I know very little about them but what I know about them in terms of their sexuality is very is quite amazing mm-hmm. um, but insects also are um, they're physically very adaptable in certain insects in similar ways I think um, but I should you know I should say again I'm not an entomologist so this is stuff I shouldn't be talking about um, but the what I did get interested in was some um, I came across a photograph that seemed to show well. The person who took the photograph was an amateur entomologist um, called George Kresak, who's also a um, psychiatrist and amateur entomologist who lives in in Florida. Um, and the photo fo- the photo shows some kind of sexual interaction between a beetle and a butterfly. Well, he said it did. Um, the photo <laughs> actually shows sort of kind of an embarrassed looking <laughs> embarrassed looking butterfly and a beetle who you can't really see what they're, they're looking like. So it's sort of like just after the fact and um, might not be embarrassed, but sort of what it looks like in the photo, and um, there something. It appears that something happened be- happened between them, and that just got me thinking about the ways that sexuality amongst animals in general is um, mm-hmm. is talked about, and how difficult it it's been. Although actually, right now there's quite a lot of attention on it because of the um, New York Times Sunday Magazine just had a big article about same-sex sex amongst animals mm-hmm. this week. Um, but um, how difficult it 's been for biologists to recognize same sex sex um, amongst amongst animals it 's taken a long time for them to do that and originally, when they saw it, they just pretty much pretty much denied it i think animal scientists largely because you know it's it 's a problem if you 're committed to the idea that sex has to lead to reproduction that 's the only reason for having it then how do you how do you explain the you know, widespread um, practice of same-sex, non-reproductive sex sex amongst animals. So, um, at first, there were all these strange explanations. Um, People said that it was, you know, they said, and and within sex particularly, actually, they said that fruit flies were practicing for male fruit flies when they were having sex with other male fruit flies, were practicing for, you know, when they had a chance to actually have real sex. Um, They said that... um, They were making a mistake that they didn't... Boy, they sound like senators and congressmen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, even worse, you know, they, they said that it was you know laboratory conditions that were creating it, which was like you know it was like gay sex in prison or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It's it's uh, the, the bathroom. <laughs> exactly, a public exactly. bathroom. There were
1: all all kinds of you know every every explanation except that maybe they were doing it because they wanted to do it or they were enjoying it or something like that. It took a long, long time to get to that, and even when they got to that, they still had to come up with evol- evolutionary explanations, such as you know, it provides some kind of social lubrication or something it, it keeps people it reduces tension amongst the group of these kinds of things therefore it helps it helps reproduction in general um, There are very few people There's a there's a guy called Paul Vasey who's worked with um, Japanese macaques biologists who's worked with Japanese macaques um, and there's a there are very large numbers of um you know, again, you have to use these these human words, but very large numbers of lesbian macaques. And he argues very, very convincingly that, you know, you have lesbian macaques because lesbian macaques like having sex. They like having, you know, go-girl girl sex. They like having same-same-sex. Um, and he... But he's in a very small minority. Most people most people don't... Most biologists don't talk about um, same-sex sex as being about pleasure. They talk about it as, as having some... As being primarily for an evolutionary function mm-hmm. and being sort of incidental to everything else um, so so in this chapter i suppose the chapter is sort of a speculation um both about that and also about other kinds of sex that you know it doesn't there are all kinds of queer sex possibilities as the photographs seem to show mm-hmm. that aren't just about same-sex sex
0: now y- you also talk about uh, some insects that don't get along with humans so well, I'm talking Ooh. about what is sometimes called the sky prawn when when it's uh, fried in a fritter <laughs> or uh, or the locusts. Yeah, Ta- yeah. A, a, and, and that there's a I never knew that there were people who dedicated their
1: lives to locust control. That's really fascinating. This was this was one of the most difficult chapters for me to write. It was based on fieldwork that I did in Niger in West Africa. And I was interested in going there because people have a very, um, let's say, ambivalent relationship with grasshoppers. They're an important source of food, and but they're also very um, deadly and dangerous. Both as inf- when you get these massive infestations of locusts, mm-hmm. um, which happen periodically, but also when you have these um, the, the general sort of attrition that comes from. Grasshoppers, grasshoppers, been present in fields, particularly in people's people's millet crops. People in the area that I was in would lose up to fifty percent of their millet crops every year from grasshoppers. Really? Yeah. And, and this it,
0: isn't just this isn't the sky darkening biblical no, plague. No, this is not. just a few crawling through. They're no. big eaters, eh?
1: Yeah, and the thing thing is that people are, you know, the big the big sky darkening thing is is highly traumatizing to people. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, the year on year just attrition of having their, so much of their crops destroyed is a much bigger problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, that, that, that problem gets very, very little attention from development organizations and um, international organizations because it's not very dramatic and it doesn't precipitate any kind of crisis in, in a sort of, yeah, in a dramatic dramatic sense i mean we never we never hear about that in in north america no exciting one f- movie moments exactly exactly whereas with whereas with a famine it's it's overwhelming and you know you have appeal famine appeals internationally and this kind of this kind of thing but in, in terms of people's people's lives in general i think it's it's fair to say that that it's um it's it's sort of the the day-to-day struggle that they have with insects that's that's more of a problem but it's a very important relationship because also people eat them and they're they're a very special food. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, delicious when fried, <laughs> crunchy when fried.
0: Uh, according to, to Margaret Atwood, at least. <laughs> um, now you have some interesting pieces of writing in here. Uh, just to, uh, just as prose pieces i'm thinking of ex libris which is uh, kind of yeah. an experimental chapter i yeah. think uh, appropriately so yeah. talk about uh, creating some of the prose poems you talk about your nightmares uh, mm-hmm. um talk, talk about creating some of these more i think uh literary pieces uh, yeah. and how you know the looking at what we all call bugs mm. ends up with literature yeah
1: well you know that. i'm i'm I really like writing a lot. Mm-hmm. And so the book gave me an opportunity to really, you know, think about writing and to, into, as you say, to ex- to experiment. So there's a lot of different styles in here, I think. Or I give myself the freedom to try out different things. And um, so some of it's kind of lyrical, and then some of it is, is quite quite dark. But um, it's... I think insects are so... What's the word? They just... They have so many different... Possibilities. There are so many different kinds of them. They have so much. They're so power. They get into our psyche in such powerful ways, and we very often have these very intense relationships with them in different ways. That it that it provokes provokes you as a writer to to somehow <laughs> wanting to wanting to capture the you know the yeah the intensity of those feelings and the intensity of the the animals themselves. Sometimes you know I started out by saying how hard it was to figure out a way to. To to think about insects and make sense of them, and in a way, I think I ended up that one of the most um, effective ways for me personally. I don't know if it's if it if it is if it comes across that way in the book, but one of the most effective ways has been just trying to do it imaginatively mm-hmm. and through writing and to convey some of that um, through through different kinds of writing. I've
0: been speaking with Hugh Raffles. He's a professor of anthropology at Eugene Lang College, the New School for Liberal Arts. His new book is Insectopedia. Thank you for joining me. Thank, thank
1: you. I, you know, I've really enjoyed this week. It's great. Thank you very much.